You're listening to the Data Point Podcast, brought to you by The Hindu. I'm your host, Sonika Loganathan. In July, the Hindu's data team published a story that revealed major disparities in the admission rates of IIT PhD candidates from scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, and other backward class communities. Data released in the Lok Sabha showed that in nine IITs across India, the acceptance rate for SC, ST, OBC PhD candidates was at or below 8%, despite all of these universities receiving hundreds of applications. For example, in 2021, Eight departments of IIT Delhi received 637 eligible PhD applications from SC, ST, OBC students. None of them were admitted. All the 53 available seats were given to students from the general category or filled using the economically weaker sections quota. In IIT Tirpati, IIT Mandi, IIT Bilai, and IIT Goa, no ST candidates were admitted. Only 0.2% of SC candidates got into IIT Tirpati, and just 1% in IIT Mandi and 1.8% in Goa. Meanwhile, in IIT Indore, while applications from the general category made up just 41.2% of the total applications received, the community formed 63.8% of those admitted. The SC community made up 12% of applications, but only formed 5.5% among those admitted. And in all the IITs my team examined, except for Bilai and Goa, the percentage among admissions from the unreserved category was higher than the percentage among applications. And even if a handful of SC, ST, OBC candidates were admitted in a university, some departments still stood out. For example, IIT Madras received 31 ST applicants for its physics department. Zero were admitted. IIT Bombay got 157 SC applicants for biosciences and bioengineering. Zero were admitted. IIT Hyderabad got 225 applications from OBC candidates. Zero were admitted. This is happening despite having reservations in place which, for what it's worth, is mandated by the Constitution. What is going on behind the scenes at India's top universities, and how did this kind of structural and systemic form of discrimination ferment itself into higher education? This is the first episode of a two-part series examining this caste-based discrimination and the impact that it has. Today, I'm joined by Ajanta Subramanian, Professor of Anthropology and South Asian Studies at Harvard University. She is the author of The Cast of Merit, Engineering Education in India, which tracks the relationship between meritocracy and democracy in India in order to understand the production of merit as a form of caste property and its implications for democratic transformation. Ajanta, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to start with the data that we have collected. So. With that data, we saw that it's clear that SE, ST, OBC students face several obstacles at the entry point when they're trying to get admissions into IITs. 
So despite having a reservation in place for these students, it appears as though there's something happening behind the scenes and IITs are finding a way to evade meeting that requirement. So can you explain how that's happening and what forces are at play? Right. So, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how this is happening because I'm not privy to these discussions uh, behind closed doors any more than you are. But um, I can offer some thoughts on why it's happening. So I, I think uh, at the most sort of basic level, I think that there is prejudice against reserve category students um, because they're assumed to be intellectually inferior and not capable of competing right, uh, with other students. And, but then, you know, I, I think a second point is that even if there are faculty and administrators who are amenable to reservations at lower tiers of education, um, there would be some who object to the existence of quotas at the PhD level, mm-hmm. right? Because of the sense that at least at, at the very least, this tier of education should be based solely on, you know, so-called merit, right? And then I think the third is, uh, and, you know, this is speaking from somebody who herself teaches PhD students, right, and is part of the admissions process at my institution. Um, Often admissions at the PhD level um, are based on the status of institutions from which applicants come, right? So the, the status of institutions attended for the BA and the MA becomes really important, um, and kind of operates as a filter, mm-hmm. right, for who gets in. Um, and of course, this typically favors those who come from family histories of higher education, right? Uh, wh- who, and those tend to be people who come from caste privileged backgrounds, right? So I think that these are all factors um, that might explain this pattern, right, of non admission. Mm-hmm. Uh, for SEST and OBC students. But I also think it's important to disaggregate that category of the SCST OBC, right? Because, I mean, in regions like Tamarnad, for instance, where there's mm-hmm. a much longer history of OBC quotas, um, there actually are a lot of OBC students who are very competitive um, mm-hmm. and who do enter the ranks of PhD programs, right? Even if SE and SEs and STs are still admitted at far lower rates. So I think the SEST... I think it, it makes sense to think of that as a unit, right? But the, I think that one needs to kind of think about the, uh, the kind of OBC patterns as slightly different from the SESD mm-hmm. patterns, especially, again, especially in regions which have had um, OBC quotas for, for a longer period. Mm-hmm. So going off of that, I want to you know, get into the history a little bit more, specifically in Tamil Nadu. Uh, can you tell us, a little bit about how institutions like the IITs came to be associated with upper caste elitism and how people from upper caste ended up dominating these spaces, especially considering, you know, we did have the Dravidian movement going on at sort of the same time. Yeah. So I think in some ways uh, we have to think of the stage being set much earlier, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in the late colonial period when engineering you know, first became a, a discrete sphere of training um, and professional employment, um, it, it very quickly became associated with classroom learning, right? Um, and and with, with a sort of means to white-collar professional employment, right? 
So in the late colonial period, you see this divergence between, you know, artisanship and the trades, which were, which tended to be lower caste technical pursuits, right? From engineering, which was increasingly associated with these high status professions, right? So this sort of distinction between artisanship and the trades on the one hand and the professions on the other became a caste distinction, right? So by independence, you see that the engineering services um, are monopolized by upper caste, right? And these are sort of social groups who had actually no history of technical skill, right? So the, the castes with histories of technical skill are sort of uh, marginalized in favor of castes with histories of literacy and education, mm-hmm. right? So, so, but even at that time, even though you see this divergence happening and you see this kind of caste monopoly of engineering emerging even before independence, at that time, there was no tier of central government institutions above the regional engineering colleges, right? So why was this elite tier of engineering education created in the first place? So Mm -hmm. if you look at the report of the 1946 Sarkar Committee that was set up to look into the state of technical education in India at the time of independence, um, you get some clues into the sort of rationale, right, behind the mm-hmm. founding of the IITs. So the report called for the creation of institutions that would produce engineers, right, who would sort of spearhead India's national development. And for this purpose, the committee argued for a new tier of institutions, right, that would be set apart not just from these industrial schools for artisans and tradesmen, as was done in the colonial period, but also set apart from the older regional engineering colleges, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and the model that was used by the committee um, was MIT, the Massachusetts Institute mm-hmm. of Technology, right? So that became the model for this new tier of institutions. And, you know, they said that the, the mix of practical and theoretical sciences, mathematics, the humanities that, that, the, that MIT offered, that that would be the kind of ideal mix, right? Uh, for the IITs. And, like the so MIT's motto is mind and hand, right? So kind of mm-hmm. like the MIT's motto of mind and hand, the kind of ideal graduate of this sort of top tier uh, was supposed to be somebody who would be a perfect combination, right? Of the conceptual and the practical. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's so interesting is that in the, in the Indian context where you have these really deep-seated caste prejudices against manual occupations against a kind of technical pursuits, the IITs very quickly became associated with conceptual knowledge. Right. And that that became one of one key basis for their claim to being exceptional, right? That mm-hmm. unlike even the next tier of engineering colleges, the IITs prided themselves on being more conceptually oriented, right? Mm-hmm. And this too was the expression of a kind of caste caste sentiment, right? A caste orientation. Right. Um, and you see this, you know, when I when I interviewed um, IIT graduates, you know, they often express their frustration at having to do lab work, right? Which, and they much preferred the sort of conceptual courses, right? To the more sort of practical ones, which they thought of themselves as just not being well suited to, right? Um, so this kind of distinction between the conceptual and the practical, which is you know, in many ways, a cost distinction continues to play out in the IITs, right? Right. So the IITs were also set up with the help of a couple of um, international institutions. 
So I wonder what sort of effect that might have had on just the way that IITs operate. So this is partly what was supposed to help them become world-class institutions, right? Um, They were set up with the help of foreign partners who were supposed to help with the transfer of technical knowledge, right? And the the, the partners insisted that this kind of transfer of know-how should happen within autonomous technical institutions, right? Which would have greater freedom than the existing university system afforded, right? Sort of greater freedom to determine their own curriculum, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, And because they thought that this would really foster the spirit of research. Um, And so this also kind of allowed for this tier of institutions to be largely independent, right? Of of the pre-existing educational system. And, you know, when it came to the admissions process, um, so the Sarkar Committee report recommended selection purely on so-called merit, right? Uh And they said that none of the quotas that already existed at the provincial level should apply, right? Now, there was was some, um, you know, there was some kind of, a little bit of dissent on this, right? Mm -hmm. So there were some on the committee, especially this one committee member, uh, Nazir Ahmed, who said that some proportion of seats should be reserved for the educationally backward. Um, but, the, but the recommendation was footnoted, right, with a comment mm-hmm. that this was not the unanimous co- opinion of the committee and that this should receive further consideration. So, you know, from the beginning, you see that although the Nehruvian government was you know, officially committed to democratization and against the use of caste uh, in education policy, the fact that this tier of central government institutions was insulated uh, from kind of regional dynamics, right? From regional democratic politics. This kind of contributed to their role in socially reproducing caste, right? right? Um, And caste, it it wasn't just that caste functioned structurally in this way. It also kind of operated as a metaphor, (laughs) right? So like Nehru, for instance, actually talked about the IITs as infused with the Brahminic spirit of service. You know, so sort of language like this was pretty commonplace. Um, and, you know, the association between the IITs and the central government was kind of repeatedly put on display, right, through these kind of rituals of recognition. So, you know, at all of these convocation ceremonies, you always had like dignitaries, right? So prime ministers, presidents, ministers, foreign diplomats, and you know, this this didn't go unnoticed by the students, right? The students kind of internalized this sense of their own exceptionalism very early on. Um, and in, in terms of the makeup of the student body, it, it's really interesting because in the 1950s, so this is before the IIT entrance exam uh-huh. is institutionalized, right? So most students at the time in the 50s who even who, who were even aware of the IITs, right? This was before the IITs became a household word. I mean, the most of the students who were even aware of the IITs were the children of central government employees. So these were people who were already somehow associated with the central government, right? Right. And this kind of class of employees tended to be the literate and educated upper caste, right? Mm-hmm. Who were the backbone of the colonial administrative service and then of the post-colonial administrative service. So it's their children you know, these are children who attended the central government schools. They are the first ones who became aware of the IITs, right? And these central government schools actually became channels to the IITs 
And then once the JEE is institutionalized, this pattern kind of consolidates, right? So there's an increasing alignment between the curriculum of these schools and the entrance exam. And also the students at these central government schools are the earliest to start attending the JEE coaching classes, mm-hmm. right? To train them for the exam. So, and in fact, one of my interviewees who attended IIT Madras, he sort of referred to this upper caste orientation around coaching as a caste culture of coaching, right? So this was very sort of common, right? Uh-huh. For upper caste children to be sent to these coaching um, classes. And you know, once the exam became intensely competitive uh, mm-hmm. and becomes this kind of pan-Indian phenomenon that everybody knows about, the association of the All India rank with individual merit, um, it, this makes it all the more difficult uh, to democratize access to these mm-hmm. institutions, right? Because any of any effort to democratize access is becomes seen as an affront to meritocracy, right? So, right. you know, and you see this pushback, like the 1973 quota, when that's instituted, you get all of this pushback, Um from administrators and faculty and students who see this as a dilution of the international standards of the IITs. They see this as a sacrifice of talent to the dictates of social justice, right? So there's all of this opposition uh, to changing the social composition of the IITs, right, Um, from the 1970s on. And it just becomes more and more fierce um, as things progress. So one of the arguments that we've seen is that having these JEE training institutions has actually helped level the playing field a little bit and given students from more underprivileged backgrounds the opportunity to be able to compete and have access to the skill set or learning the skill set that is needed to get into an IIT. So I'm just wondering if you agree with that, but also what are the problems that come with being associated to these training institutions and that being the way that you get into an IIT, you know, that sort of mentality, how does that play into the concept of innate capability versus accumulated knowledge? So, I mean, this is really interesting. Um, So, I mean, to some degree, I think, yes, the coaching industry, well, not to some degree, to a great degree, the coaching industry has made the IITs less exclusive, right? So the the kind of social makeup of the student body has changed to different degrees in different IITs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in IIT Madras, which is the one I know best, um, it has brought in um, more uh, OBC students, more sort of um, uh, non-upper caste, right? It has also brought in a lot of rural upper caste, especially from... Um, Andhra Pradesh and Telangana, right? Which is one of the hubs of the coaching industry, right? Um, and, you know, so it's so these rural upper castes via co- the coaching industry have gained admission through the general category. But then there are also other SESD and OBC students who through coaching have come in through the reserve category, right? Um, and these are students who wouldn't necessarily have even aspired to gain admission to the IIT before the expansion of the coaching industry, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But so, yes, it has had a democratizing effect um, to some degree. Um, But yes, there, it has also had some um, adverse consequences, right? So, so for instance, if you look at Andhra Pradesh and Telangana, um, what the expansion of the coaching industry has done, it ha- is it has vertically integrated schooling mm-hmm. 
into yeah. entrance exam preparation. So, you know, in these coaching hubs, you even see that the coaching institutes run their own schools, mm-hmm. right? So you see that schooling has become so oriented around exam preparation, right, that that has become the kind of singular purpose of schooling, which is a real impoverishment of education, right? So that's one of the sort of adverse effects uh, of this rapid expansion uh, of the coaching industry. A second, of course, is that you you have middle-class families who now feel that their children can and should aspire um, to the IITs. And these coaching industries are not cheap, (laughs) right? So a lot of middle-class families are driven into debt, right? Because they invest heavily in coaching as a kind of necessary means to social and economic mobility, right? So you have a kind of increasing indebtedness uh, on the part of middle-class families. Um, And, uh, you know, a third adverse effect, I would say, is that uh, it's created new distinctions, new social distinctions within the IITs, right? So, you know, one of these distinctions is between the so-called coaching factories, right, which are seen as attended by students who are not who don't fit the traditional profile of the IITN, right? So there's a distinction being drawn between the, the, the products of these co- so-called coaching factories and the students who atti- attend the more boutique urban mm-hmm. coaching classes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that tend to be attended by the, you know, by upper class, right? right. So, uh, and so, you know, you see uh, these anxieties being expressed by administrators and, and faculty at the IITs that, the exam is a, is allowing for the admission of students who are just coached and not gifted, right? right? Right. That there's a kind of, you know, that this the students who go through these coaching factories are just learning things uh, by rote. They don't really understand concepts. They're coming in because they have managed to crack the exam in a sort of machine-like fashion, right? But haven't mm-hmm. really learn the concepts. Um, so again, it's not that the upper class students don't attend coaching classes. Everybody attends coaching classes, right? But they're seen as more gifted because they attend a particular kind of coaching class, right? Um, that that really sort of enhances their conceptual abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just enhances their culture, uh, conceptual abilities, abilities, but shores up conceptual abilities that they already have, <laughs> right. right? So there's this... So there are these new distinctions that are being drawn. So it's not like the, the expansion of the coaching industry has simply leveled the playing field mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, eradicated pre-existing cost distinctions, cost and class distinctions. In fact, it has created more distinctions, right? Um, that becomes sort of key to how students are evaluated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think the last thing I'll say is that the intensity of training, especially in these larger centers, right, where students, you know, they don't, they don't just come for evening classes, they actually live there, right? right? I mean, they're subjected to the most physically and mentally taxing routine uh, of coaching. And, you know, it's this has led to suicides, other forms of mental illness. So, um it's really no way to prepare for college, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, it it um, it really undercuts the 
the well-being of these students. Um, so in all of these ways, I think it's, it has, uh, it's changed the social profile of the student body, but um, there, there are lots of negative consequences that I think should not be overlooked. Yeah. So you mentioned that, you know, these training institutions have brought in a lot of people from rural areas into the cities where these IITs are. I'm wondering, can you tell me a little bit about the distinction, I guess, between the different castes and classes, and then also the rural-urban divide between students and sort of the difference in those experiences? So, I mean, I, I think that there are certainly exceptions to the caste-class overlap, mm-hmm. right? Um, but there are also clear structural regularities, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to schedule castes and schedule tribes, Right. The OBC category, I think, is more complex, right? Right. right? I think OBCs have experienced uh, some measure of socioeconomic mobility. Uh, and again, this, there's, there's a lot of regional variability here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is less so for scheduled costs and scheduled tribes, right? Um, who are still, you know, overwhelmingly... Um, poor, mm-hmm. right, um, and also haven't been able uh, to attain um, the, the kind of educational qualifications that allow them to be, to, to compete equally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that distinction is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the sort of almost, one of the most interesting phenomena in the IITs is the entry of these rural upper castes, right? So mm-hmm. When I say rural upper caste, I'm talking about groups that do have social and economic capital, right, uh, from land, for instance, um, but don't necessarily have the cultural capital mm-hmm. uh, that comes with things like facility with English, mm-hmm. uh, a certain kind of cosmopolitan flair. Um, and so... You know, when you look at the discrimi- discrimination that that they face, right? Um, it's it's around things like that, right? That they yeah. so you know one complaint that I heard at IIT Madras is that these students come and refuse to speak English, right? Mm-hmm. That they speak Telugu, and that that kind of undercuts um, the global orientation of the IITs, right? Um, it kind of blurs the distinction between regional institutions, right, where you are more likely to hear regional languages and the IITs, which are national and even global, right? So mm-hmm. there's a kind of parochialism that's uh, that's associated with these students because they don't speak English, right? Mm-hmm. So things like that, right? So these are students who do have s- social and economic capital, but they, they lack certain forms of, of cultural capital, Right. right. So that becomes the basis of one form of discrimination, which is different from what scheduled caste and scheduled tribe students or even OBC students face, right? Because they're seen as lacking other kinds of social capital. Um, so, yeah, I think one has to kind of parse these differences carefully. Um, mm-hmm. So speaking of, you know, the kinds of comments that students make to other students, you know, when a candidate does make it into an IIT, they they find themselves in a space that they historically have not been welcomed in. 
So what are some of the issues that they face, not just among their peers, but also, you know, the relationship that they have with faculty and staff? What, how is their experience impacted? So I think that there are more, both more overt and more subtle forms mm-hmm. of discrimination. Um, you, know, you must have seen that leaked video of the preparatory course where this faculty member is expressing extreme hostility and open, openly stigmatizing uh, students in the course, right? Um, and, you know, this might be an extreme case, but it, it's, it's on a spectrum, right? It's at one end of a spectrum of forms of discrimination, forms of stigmatization, right? Uh, that makes students who get in through reservations, especially the SESD students, feel that they're undeserving of an IIT education, right? Um, I mean, these are students who are made to feel that they have taken seats away from people who are more deserving, from more meritorious candidates, uh, that that their intellectual inferiority will guarantee that they will never succeed, right? And you you have to remember that these are students who have gotten in at, uh, by overcoming impossible odds, right? Severe obstacles. Um, and the, and the, you know, and the, the tragedy of overcoming such odds and obstacles, arriving at an institution and then being made to feel like they have stolen a seat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that they've been that they've gotten there by through sort of um, corrupt uh, means, right? Um, that they'll never be representative of the IITs, right? And in fact, that their presence, their very presence, makes these institutions more mediocre, right? Mm-hmm. That their presence undercuts the brand, right? Um, uh, so these are the kinds of things that that they they, they routinely face. These kinds of accusations, right? Um, and you know, there's an interesting way in which you know, one response is to try to hide, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to try to pass um, as non-reserved, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so part of what you see is this kind of incessant diagnostics, right, uh, of caste, where mm-hmm. students are trying to figure out who each other are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the kind of, one of the most... Um, common indices, right, mm-hmm. of, of caste is the, the rank in the exam, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So as soon as students enter, they're asked about their rank. And the rank becomes a way to discern whether they're general category or reserve category students. The, 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 the sort of pairing of the rank and the branch often becomes a kind of clue, right, um, clue to, you know, whether they got in through one means or the other. So, mm-hmm. so the rank becomes this really important indicator of who you are, what you are, and the extent to which you belong or don't belong, mm-hmm. and even a, a kind of indicator of what your future success will be, right? The rank becomes this all-determining index uh, of social and intellectual worth, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing that um, the schedule class students that I spoke to continuously referred to, that they were terrified of being asked about their rank, right? And that this was the case not just within the IIT, but even when they went for job recruitment, right? That the mm-hmm. rank would expose them, right? Um, uh, and they would try to sort of cover up the fact that they got in through um, through the reserve category or that they went through the preparatory course because um, uh, these these that information would automatically be used against them, right? right? Invariably, it would it would work against them. Um, yeah. So these are some of the ways in which I think the experience of the IITs um, can be deeply demoralizing. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you know, for students who get in, there's there's certainly a sort of pride in having accomplished this, right? Uh, uh, having succeeded, but once they're there, I mean, it was really poignant. I had students say that they felt this exhilaration when they got in, mm-hmm. and were often, you know, celebrated in their homes and their neighborhoods. And then they would arrive and immediately feel like they were put back in their place, right? Yeah, right. That they were made, they were, re- they were re-stigmatized, right, by virtue of their. Um, status as reserve category students. So, yeah. So obviously when you're in any institution, but especially if you're in in an IIT, you can't get through it alone, right? You need to have your support circle. You need to have people to help you academically and socially. So I wonder if the formation of student groups like the Ambedkar Periyar study circle, you know, how has that helped with community building and how significant is it that these sorts of communities have formed in the first place? No, I think, I mean, I, I think, you know, you can, you can date a lot of these new student organizations. You can date them um, from the implementation of the OBC quota, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, from 2008, you see new student identities that are, that are openly expressed you know, a kind of claim to caste and regional identities that previously were uh, were seen as threatening and and also out of place at the IITs, right? Um, so, you know, the Ambedkar Periyar Study Circle is kind of emblematic of of this change, right? Uh, you know, the fact that this is that they pay tribute to Ambedkar and Peria tells you a lot, right? Um, that they're, they're placing themselves in a certain political lineage, right? Mm-hmm. Of um, Dalit and uh, OBC assertion, right? Uh, of a kind of politics of dignity and rights against upper caste hegemony, Um so this is this is what they're asserting, and it, this would have been unthinkable, right? Even even in the nineteen nineties, right? So this is yeah. a new this is a new phenomenon, and it's I think the reason it was even possible is because of the transformation of the of the student body, right? So mm-hmm. it required a kind of critical mass of students from uh, non upper caste backgrounds, right? who felt a certain safety in numbers mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and they felt that, you know, by virtue of being 
you know, a larger part of the student body that they had a right to challenge uh, a kind of dominant institutional culture, right? Uh, to challenge sort of pre-existing caste norms. Um, so that's what you're seeing, right? So you know, they, they, there's all kinds of programming that they do on, you know, the history of Dravidianism, but also uh, a lot of programming around labor rights, right? Uh, sort of programming that calls into question uh, economic liberalization and its effects. So the, there's a lot of new stuff, right? And I and I and I think that I think that the the impact on student morale has been variable. So what I saw at IIT Madras is that a lot of these, well, the APSC, for instance, was not started by BTEC students. It was started by students in the MA and PhD program, right? Uh, so these are students who came to the IITs later in their educational trajectory, right? And, and who already had been politicized, right, at their at previous educational institutions, right, and came in with this political sensibility, right? Mm-hmm. For the BTEC students, I think that there's a there's a lot of um, it's 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 a mixed response. So I think a lot of them there's a nervousness about participating too openly. Um, there's, I think, also more buy-in to the idea of the IIT as a kind of exceptional space, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is different from other institutions in part in part because it's not political, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That the IITs um, stand apart from politics, uh, that these are spaces of pure learning, so I think there's more buy-in to that kind of idea on the part of BTEC students than they are mm-hmm. than there is on the part of, you know, more advanced students. So, um, but I do think that just the fact of such organizations, the fact that there isn't just one identity which is mm-hmm. now representative of the IITs, right? And that there is strength in numbers. I think all of this has been really important, right? Um, and, you know, it's had a kind of knock-on effect, right? I mean, you've got, you've got these sister organizations to the APSC in lots of other IITs and even in right. other uh, universities, right? So um, I think there's also this kind of sense of solidarity, not just within a single institution, but because of this sort of network uh, of student organizations, there's a sense of solidarity across institutions, right? Uh, which has also been really important, especially because, you know, the Modi government has been far more interventionist um, um, uh, on these campuses, right? I mean, there's been a kind of clear alignment between a kind of upper caste student body and uh, administrative, um, upper caste student body and administration, an alignment between them and the central government. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think having this kind of wider solidarity of student organizations is really key, right, um, uh, to face up to this, to a much more aggressive, uh, aggressively Hindu nationalist uh, and upper caste central government kind of force, know, force yeah. right? Yeah. So I want to get into the placement process a little bit more because, you know, of course, you go to an IIT so that you can get a good paying job at a distinguished company. 
But I wonder how these caste biases follow students into that placement process. And if there's a discrepancy between, you know, the kinds of jobs and packages that SCEST students are offered versus, you know, all the other students there. So I think, again, this is where the JEE rank becomes really crucial. Um, Mm -hmm. So the... I didn't speak to many ST students, but the SC, mm-hmm. the Dalit students that I interviewed um, did tell me that even if they had done well up to a certain point in a job interview process, uh, that when they were asked about their rank and uh, you know the fact that they're Dalit, the fact that they got in through the reserve category, et cetera, uh, once this was revealed... Um, it really affected their prospects, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, and what that meant was, you know, either they were offered a lower-paying job or they weren't offered jobs at all. Um, and so, again, you know, their strategy was typically to try to sort of obscure the fact of the rank as much as possible um, mm-hmm. until it was uh, until they had no choice, right? So. Right. Right. Uh, so there was a sort of clear sense that they had that being a reserve category student put you in a different pool, <laughs> right? Uh, that you were not participating um, in the same pool mm-hmm. as the general category students. And that recruiters were hyper-conscious of this distinction, right? And, and they tried to figure out, you know, which group you belong to very early on. So it seemed to me that there, there really was a kind of two-tier system that had emerged uh, where only general category students are, are really able to effectively leverage the IIT pedigree, right, to get the most coveted jobs. So it's not, you know, so the IIT pedigree itself has, is not a kind of unitary thing, right? Um, different groups are able to use it differently. Because the distinctions within the student body that have come about um, uh, have become really key, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to how different graduates are perceived, to how their abilities are perceived, right? Um, to the extent to which they are um, actively recruited and seen as desirable, right, applicants. So we also know that, of course, caste discrimination is not specific to India. We've seen it within the diaspora community abroad as well. And, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about how the label of having how the label of being an IIT graduate is perceived abroad, but also how this caste discrimination continues to manifest itself in the workplace in places like the U.S., because you know, we've seen recently with Google and Cisco that there has been cases of caste discrimination against its employees. So can you just tell us a little bit more about that? You know, I think it's important to see how caste uh, manifests in the diaspora, right? So how does caste become transnationalized, transnational, right? Um, You know, so as with other aspects of, you know, Indian... Uh, society um, that that um, that travel with the diaspora with migration, you know, so does caste, right? Um, right? And one way you see this is is in the caste composition of different nodes of the diaspora. So the U.S. is the most affluent and most upper caste node 
of the diaspora, right? Even compared with the UK and other places. So, and that has to do with a certain sort of migration pattern, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the US Immigration Act of 1965, you know, uh, really opened the doors for a certain kind of Indian migrant, right? Um, You know, these were professionals, highly educated, uh, and technical, right? Technically trained. Um, I mean, this, this was the kind of migrant that was really um, desired. Uh, And so, you know, that, that sort of set a certain pattern in motion, right? And, and what has facilitated that pattern on the, from the Indian end, so from the US end, you see this kind of desire for a certain kind of technical professional, right? Uh, right. On the Indian, on the Indian end, of course, you know the IITs are uh, they're educational institutions, but they're also institutions within which there are certain forms of kinship, right, uh, uh, that are fostered, right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, IITians feel a very strong bond with each other, right, and these are bonds that outlast their time in college, right, and mm-hmm. so these networks that extend between the extend across uh, the globe and that connect India to the United States have been really key um, in facilitating uh, migration to into both PhD programs and then into jobs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when I talked to, to uh, alumni from the 1960s, you know, these were the forerunners, right, who went and, you know, populated universities and different kinds of companies. Um, uh, but often when they went to the U.S., they found themselves on their own, right? There was no one, yeah. there, were, there were very few others, other Indians. By the time you get to the 1990s, this is a kind of well-trodden path, right? And there are certain mechanisms in place that ensure the placement of IITs in particular in the most coveted engineering programs, jobs, etc. So, um, so, you know, this is what allows caste to travel, right? Caste becomes um, a pathway both, uh, you know, into higher education in India uh, and then out of India to the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, you know, when I, in the book, I talk about this as a, as a form of transnational institutional kinship, Right, yeah. um, uh, that people tend to hire their own. When I spoke to, when I spoke to faculty recruiters in private companies in the U.S., I mean, they often told me that the IIT alumni were the most sought after. Right, so that you see IITians who have made, who have done well recruiting their own. Yeah. Right, um, so it becomes this sort of process of reproduction, right? Um, and so, you know, once once reservations come in and you have uh, a more stark polarization within these campuses between general and reserve category students, there's now a greater kind of uh, awareness that these distinctions exist. Mm-hmm. So, when you look at what happened at Cisco, right, with the Dalit engineer claiming discrimination from his upper caste bosses, you know, what, what did he say? He said that, that he had gotten a job at Cisco and that at a certain point, 
one of his bosses, who was also an IITian, like him, had figured out that he was a reserve category student, right? And had used this information to deny him a proportion, a, a promotion, right? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that, you know, he took this to HR, to the Human Resources Department at Cisco. They did an investigation. And the results of the invis- investigation are interesting. So they, Cisco both said that um, there was no evidence of discrimination that they could mm-hmm. discern. But they also said that because caste is not a protected category in U.S. anti-discrimination law, there was no basis for them to find discrimination. So caste was not a legible category for them, right? And then this is when the Dalit employee uh, decided to um, approach, to go beyond the, beyond the company, right? So now, so the case was then taken up by the California Department of Fair Housing and Employment. And, you know, once the Cisco case broke, the floodgates opened and you had many more people coming out. And again, sort of testifying to their experiences of discrimination anonymously because they were very, they're still very fearful of retaliation. Right. right? So you had, you have, you've had many more people coming out with, um, with, with, yeah, with kind of testimonies, um, and of course, the tech sec- sector is key because it has so many South Asians, right? right? So you're seeing this within the tech sector. But you know, I'm in I'm in academia, and you know, I've been at Harvard for 20 years. Uh, before this, I taught. Uh, I also, I've also taught at Cornell. Uh, I taught at Cornell for a year. I taught at Duke for two years, and to date. And this goes back to your first question about PhDs and the caste composition of PhD programs. You know, I've had one Dalit student in all of my time at these different institutions. Um, and, and so it's not just a function of patterns of migration. It's also, you know, the institutional pedigrees that even we as PhD uh, granting programs look for, right? We tend to sort of only go for certain sort of name brand institutions. Um, and there's, there's, you know, we're very conscious now in the U.S. of the need for gender diversity, for racial diversity, for even sort of sexual diversity. But caste is not seen as important, right? It's, not, it's, it's only now being recognized as a, a basis for social stratification, right? And so I think increasingly... There's, there's a real push now to make caste part of diversity training, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to make caste a consideration um, in recruitment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to make it a kind of conscious part of, of recruitment, right? Uh, so it's not just preventing discrimination. Right. It's about changing the actual composition of universities and companies, right? So that uh, oppressed caste members of these institutions don't feel quite as isolated, <laughs> right. right? So this kind of conscious effort to diversify, I think, is just beginning. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you now have the the California um, state university system, which is one of the largest public university systems in the U.S., has now recognized caste as a protected category, which is huge, right?
This issue is seen across elite higher education institutions in India. We'll be expanding on this issue next week with inputs from students and professors. That's it for this week's episode, and you can find all of the Data Point podcasts on all major streaming services. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.